Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 263 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Ben Barton about fixing law school. If today's podcast resonates with you and you haven't read our book, The Small Firm Roadmap, yet, you can get the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com slash book. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ruby, Back Office Betty's, Text Expander, and Rankings.io. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so please stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So this podcast is going to launch a couple of weeks before you and I and Stephanie are at ABA Tech Show in Chicago at the end of February. I think this will probably be like our 10th or 11th year in a row going to Tech Show. Something like that, yeah. And once again, we're really excited to be hosting a happy hour for members of the Lawyerist Tribe. If you would like to join us there um, and are an insider, you will hear more about our Thursday, February 27th happy hour in Chicago. Um, And if you aren't yet an insider, you can join in time to get that invitation. Yeah, we'd love to see you there. And whether or not you can come to the happy hour, um, you know, keep an eye out. We'll be around. I'll be mostly in the expo hall, um, but I'd love to chat with any of you who are there. And uh, so so would Aaron, so would Stephanie. So hopefully we'll see you there. Indeed. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Tim Bedford from Ruby, and then my conversation with Ben. Hello, this is Tim Bedford with Ruby, formerly Ruby Receptionist. And over the last 16 years, we've seen Quite a bit of success uh, that's largely in part due to our relationships with partners all over the legal vertical um, as they account for nearly 40 percent of our 10,000 plus clients. Uh, we work with the likes of 40 plus bar associations and other legal thought leaders much like yourself over there at Lawyers. So needless to say, I'm pretty happy to be here. Yeah, welcome, Tim. So um, you guys put together a new webinar and ebook on the state of the legal industry. What is that and where did it come about? Like, what's the database done? Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So we recently assembled a pretty hefty ebook appropriately called uh, Practice Perfect. Had to give a quick plug there. But uh, we looked to tons of data across Clio's 2019 legal trend report, Mm -hmm. uh, plenty of responses from current customer surveys. And Notice a, a couple of things that really stood out. So the wide array of personalities and stories and different areas of law that's practiced by a lot of these lawyers, uh, they seem to share two common goals, uh, one of those being a sustainable business model and the other being uh, just a desire for growth. Those seem fair <laughs> and accurate. <laughs> one thing that really stood out to me was that nine out of 10 lawyers would actually like to see their firms grow over the next three years. And the majority of these attorneys agree that Increasing revenue and expanding their client base are the two most important factors in creating that growth. But by the same token, those two factors are actually their biggest challenges. So it's kind of tough to put those two together when they're a challenge and a goal. So a couple roadblocks are really standing in the way of turning those challenges into uh, completed goals. And uh, one of those would be, you know, just uh, if, if you put yourself in a client's shoes. Um, what is it exactly they're looking for? How do they go about finding an attorney? How do they ultimately select one? That selection process is actually quite similar to the decision-making processes you go through on a day-to-day basis. So think about you know, what you're selecting to eat. Either get a recommendation from a friend or colleague, you know, someone you trust, 
uh, either that or I'm sure you hop on uh, the old interwebs and conduct your own research. Probably wind up reading a whole slew of reviews just to find the best avocado toast around town. So uh, I'm sure you could see the parallels here. You know, you either rely on your friends or you know, the internet. So mm-hmm. we're in the age of instant gratification. So timeliness, responsiveness, and a real understanding of the overall process are, are pretty big factors that truly set the tone for like a fruitful client-attorney relationship. It sounds like clients are expecting more and more of lawyers who may be struggling to deliver it. That is definitely for sure. So uh, I've already hinted towards, you know, what it is that clients are expecting, but they're always wanting more, aren't they? You know, you, you look at mm-hmm. some of the data, 65% don't get any indication of next steps in the process. 4% don't get a cost estimate, which is kind of wild. Uh, and then 61% don't even get enough information that they can understand, which obviously legal jargon is so um, there's some clear things that stand in the way. I'm, I'm sure most listeners will agree that uh, they're pressured now more than ever to do it all and do it quickly and do it well. And this is definitely magnified for some of those solo and small to medium sized firms who are required to more with less and wear tons of different hats. So one shocking trend that really remained consistent over the last couple of years is uh, the amount of billable hours that, that lawyers are actually uh, charging for. And that averages about two and a half a day, which is pretty insignificant as it sounds. So if you had actually just increased that by one billable hour per day, that could ultimately result in $67,000 increase in your bottom line. So that could be the difference between a flourishing and growing firm or not. And those, those hours aren't just vanishing. Uh, you know, Administrative tasks and marketing efforts and these dev ideas are all areas that are essential to the business, and firm, but ultimately take a toll on productivity. So what can lawyers focus on, given that clients want more for less and they're more demanding than ever before? Um, how can lawyers put their resources in the right place? Yeah, so we saw that there were three like glaring areas for attorneys to focus on in order to increase that bottom line. Uh, one would be efficiency, uh, two, converting clients, and then three, actually uh, the retention of existing clients. So if you take a look at efficiency, there's, there's tons of small tweaks that one can make to help streamline the firm. I know it's tough for attorneys to often outsource aspects of their firm and their baby after all, but mm-hmm. implementing uh, a little thing such as like a virtual receptionist to answer the phones can really free up time for both the attorney and even paralegals who, who might be in the office, you know, allowing them to tackle more things around the office and paperwork and whatnot. With nearly two out of three clients communicating with lawyers, uh, they didn't even end up hiring. There's clearly an opportunity to capture more business, especially when they're already knocking at your door. So having those phones being answered is, is super clutch. Which is obviously where Ruby can come in. So to get the ebook and watch Ruby's webinar and learn more about Ruby and what it has discovered about the state of the legal industry, visit ruby.com slash lawyerist. That's ruby.com slash lawyerist, and you can find the link in the show notes. Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks for having me. So, hey, I am Ben Barton, and I am a law professor at the University of Tennessee, and I am the author of Fixing Law Schools, From Collapse to the Trump Bump and Beyond. Welcome back, Ben. Uh, I was just looking up episode numbers, and this is your second show after episode 148 almost two years ago. I know. Very proud to be back. I must not have pooped the bed too bad last time. <laughs> not even a little bit. Uh, we're glad to have you back, especially with such a provocatively titled book. All right. So how do you come to be writing about law schools and the state of law schools? 
I mean, that's that's not something that you're studying and teaching your students in class, I imagine. No, um, that's actually an outstanding question. So this is the fourth book that I've written. And so people will ask me a much more general question, which is sort of how do you choose book topics? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is that they usually choose me. So this was not a topic that I was planning on writing about, but I was asked for a symposium to write a short piece. And I asked the question in the short piece, why haven't more law schools closed? And I just started writing and writing and writing and writing. And by the time I was done, it was a book. Like it just, that, that question has so many different facets to it. And given the last 10 years... Yeah, that's, you can't start there, right? It, there's a whole bunch of underlying stuff. Totally. And the, what's happened the last 10 years to law schools is so broad and interesting. Basically, I mean, as you and your uh, listeners will know, it's hard to write a book. And so you better be <laughs> excited about it. And yeah. so this was just a topic that just sort of grabbed me by the collar and hauled me through it. Good. Um, well, maybe you can bring us up to speed. I mean, I... I don't know what year it is or when I graduated from law school, but it's been a while. Um, so the last 10 years yeah. are a bit of a blur uh, for me, and I, I haven't been in touch with what's happening in law school. And I bet a lot of our listeners think they know. Um, you know, we all have some ideas about what's good and bad about law schools, but I think it would probably help to just have you tell us where we are and how we got here. Totally. Yeah. So the story starts with the Great Recession in 2008. As all stories do right now. <laughs> yeah, totally. And as everybody's going to know, that's the worst downturn since the Great Depression. And so uh, law was just another part of the economy that really struggled there. And so you have a really bad series of employment outcomes starting in 2008. Uh, but actually, for the first couple of years, it doesn't affect law schools at all. And in fact, it's a good effect on law schools because right. traditionally in a downturn, you get an actual uptick in the number of applications and enrollment. And that's actually what happened in between 2008 and 2010. Basically, people are essentially fleeing the job market. Yeah, I know you have a bunch of college grads who were like, "Oh, I don't think I'm able to get a job. What can I do?" Oh, and it's not just law schools; it's law schools, it's business schools, it's engineering schools, teaching schools. Um, basically, people tend to go to grad schools more in a downturn, and of course, the Great Recession was really bad. Makes sense. So, for the first couple of years, everyone assumed that the bad job placement numbers was just cyclical. By 2011, the job market and the general economy starts to turn, and it does not turn for lawyers generally, as the listeners this podcast will know, but it's, but it's especially true for law grads. So 2010, 2011, and basically all the way through into 2016, uh, you have pretty bad, uniformly bad job placement. Mm -hmm. And so the media story changes from recession affects everybody, including lawyers, to recession continues for law grads, don't go to law school. Mm -hmm. And in 2011, you just have a spate of awful publicity of articles in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the USA Today and Forbes. And they all ask one basic question, which is, should you go to law school at all? And by the way, law schools are lucky if it's a question. Often it's a statement, don't go to law school. Have we recovered? I, I feel like to the extent I've heard anything about this, though, lately it's been, oh, no, it's okay again. Oh, yeah, totally. Well, that's why I have the uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek title from the Trump bump. Uh, basically, starting in 2016, we hit a clear floor. Um, it's not 100% clear attendance-wise that we're seeing that much of a bounce up. Application-wise, we're seeing a pretty significant bounce up. Um, and these things are cyclical, um, so they turn. But the middle part, let me go back to the middle part. So you get all this bad publicity. The listeners to this podcast probably are very impressed by the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. But actually, the most powerful and worst publicity are the scam blogs and the YouTube videos. 
if you have not done a YouTube search for "Don't Go to Law School," you won't believe how mean those videos are. Really? They're real. Oh, they're brutal. It hasn't occurred to me to do that, but <laughs> now I want to. I have Gen Z daughters, and so I know that what's on YouTube is way more important to them than what's on the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. For the target market, there's just a whole spate of really, really, really bad publicity. So with the bad publicity, the applications collapse, and it's a, a full-blown collapse at each step. Fewer people take the LSAT. Fewer people apply, fewer people get, and when fewer people apply, fewer people get admitted. And actually, by the time you get to 14, 15, and 16, some law schools have moved into basically open admissions. Before the Great Recession, about you know, between 50 and 60% of law school applicants got into school, got into a law school. And then by, we, by the time we hit the middle of this period, like 2015, 16, it's up to 75%. Almost hmm. anybody who applies um, and is, is facially qualified gets into some law school. Because they're just desperate for attendance. Oh, totally. And not only that, the people who get in, uh, it's significant discounting. So you have, uh, in 2016, you have about 30% fewer first years than you had just five years before in 2011 and significant discounting. The, I think it's the 16 class was the smallest entering class since 1974. And there were like 158 law schools in 1974, and there were over 200 in 2016. So hmm. it's pretty brutal times. And when you say discounting, like law schools are actually just giving people, like they're making it easier to go to law school by making it cheaper. Yeah, it's, well, the, uh, there's, uh, that's partially true and partially not true. Okay. Uh, part of the story here, and so so far through this story, you may be feeling bad for law schools. Um, but <laughs> when I tell you what happened with tuition and debt, you're going to change your mind, I think. Every year since 1984, law school tuition on average has gone up more than inflation. Hmm. It, that continues all the way through this period. It's the worst downturn in the, like basically the measured history of law schools. So the worst downturn in 50 years. And law schools continue to relentlessly raise the price of going to law school. And the run-up in student debt between the early 2000s and into this period is just jaw-dropping. I mean, it's more than doubles just for law school debt. The most recent years given out by the ABA the average law student at a private school comes out with uh, more than six figures worth of debt, and at a public school, it's around ninety-five thousand bucks. Like, and that's just the law school debt. There's mm. a whole other layer of debt that comes along with it. Usually, undergraduate, yeah. So, yeah. So, the, on the one hand, they're discounting, like they're giving significant scholarships, and they're trying to get people in the building, and they're doing the best that they can. But on the other hand, the students who aren't getting the scholarships are paying higher tuition. So. So anyhow, it's a very challenging financial situation for law schools. Sounds like it. And so basically, and if you had a third fewer customers in any other market, you would expect to see about a third of the participants exit from the market. Mm -hmm. Basically, and I call that a market-based closure, and that's not fancy economics. That's just regular economics. Like if fewer people pay less, then there's less income, and so it's hard to stay open. Um, but it actually, it turns out that law schools squeeze their way through this. Um, and they squeeze their way through it by a series of very, very, very aggressive cuts. Um, there are huge cuts in the number of tenured faculty. There's huge cuts in the number of uh, adjunct faculty and the even bigger cuts in staff along at the law schools. About where are we right now in at like time? Oh, so this is all going on between 2011 and 2018. Um, and actually, the weird thing is we've, we've stabilized in terms of attendance. Um, and it's actually gone up a little bit. But the bloodletting in terms of the tenured faculty has continued and cost cutting has just continued. Part of this is that, um, and you can actually see it in waves. 
So the standalone law schools that don't have big endowments, and then, of course, obviously the private law schools, which have no endowments and people who aren't really willing to float them for very long, the cutting starts there immediately. Like as soon as you see the downturn, the cutting starts. Hmm. There's a whole bunch of law schools that are these sort of middle-class law schools that are like, uh, well, the University of Tennessee where I teach or uh, Cincinnati Law School, or basically pick your regional state school or your regional private law school that's pretty good, but not a top 25 law school. Right. Insofar as they're attached to a university, universities have kind of been floating law schools for a while um, and running them at a loss. And some of the stats on the losses that they're running are just staggering. Now, a bunch of the private schools we're ever going to hear about because you don't find out about that. Um, but if you look up the stats at the University of Minnesota Law School, which is a top 25 law school, it's a tremendous law school. Totally. Bring it home. <laughs> and I know they've got, uh, they've hired a new dean who I personally know is a great guy. So I'm not trying to run down that law school, but they were running in that millions of dollars of deficit year over year over year uh, before they grew the size of their class, cut their faculty, and tried to get the budget balanced. Hmm. Northwestern Law School, which is the top 15 law school, faced the same thing and announced publicly that they were cutting back. So Part of the reason you, you haven't seen this completely work out through the entire market is because it's been on a time lag. Uh, some schools kind of floated their law schools for a while and then woke up and were like, really, we're going to pay millions of dollars a year to run a law school? And then at that point, then the law school has to make cuts. We just haven't seen the full effects of it yet. No, we haven't seen the full effects of They're it. They're still floating. Again, we're in the middle of the story. So if the Trump bump yep. is real, and I'll explain the Trump bump now, mm -hmm. uh, and it's not just like a slight uptick or a floor, but we're actually going to see a boom, um, then there's the, the really perverse chance, and this is part of what the book is about, that law schools are just going to brush their shoulders off and be like, whew, that was a close one. I've learned nothing. Time to move on and do everything <laughs> exactly the same. Yep. And so that's not a very good result for law schools. And of course, like having this be a floor and having to have a whole bunch of layoffs is not a good result either. So either way, there's work to be done. But yeah, basically, so 2016, all of a sudden the media narrative turns um, and it could just be a cyclical change. I mean, the hiring gets a little bit better and the coverage of not going to law school goes down. Uh, but I love the Trump story, so I'll just go ahead and tell it. Basically, Trump's elected, and all of a sudden, the media narrative turns to lawyer heroes who are, you know, fighting Trump at every level and showing up at the airport and trying to stop mm -hmm. the Muslim ban. And so there's a whole wave of undergraduates and people thinking about going to law school who were like, yeah, that's what I want to do. And so you get this uptick in taking the LSAT and an uptick in applications and then a slight uptick in attendance. Um, and so part of the thing I point out in the book is the hilarious irony of this result, certainly having worked on a law faculty and just generally, if you look at donations to political campaigns, the law professoriate and law schools are 95% people who despise Donald Trump. Like they have no use for him whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So it's super humorous to have him save their bacon. <laughs> and it's not just on the application side, uh, the appointment of Betsy DeVos, uh, as a Secretary of Education completely turns things in terms right. of the for-profit law schools. One of the last things the Obama DOE did was basically close the Charlotte Law School. They cut them off from federal loans, and so they didn't make them close per se, but that, that's a school that completely operated based on federal loans. So that decision basically, once the federal loans were cut off, Basically, nine months later, even under DeVoe, they were gone. That, that school just disappeared. 
Um, so humorously, there's a second Trump bump, which is changing the Department of Education policy towards these schools has made it easier for schools at the low end of law schools to make it. Is that because re- loosening restrictions on lending? Totally. Yeah. Over the eight years of Obama's term, he was very, very, very interested in, in uh, predatory for-profit schools. Right. And spoiler alert, there were some predatory for-profit law schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to say all of them were predatory, but but Charlotte like, I'm not weeping any cures for Charlotte. That's the school that had to go. But yeah, the way they did it is they banned the school from having uh, federal loans. And the thing that was a little bit funny about it, or fun, funny to odd, was Charlotte Law School was a bad law school where uh, students struggled to graduate, struggled to find jobs, and struggled to pass the bar. And so in my opinion, like, it was completely fine. Like they were so underperforming that it was an appropriate remedy, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't the worst law school in the country, and it was not unique in that regard. Right. So if there had been a Hillary Clinton DOE, there's a chance that, that the treatment that Charlotte got might have spread to 10, 15, 20 other law schools that were like in the neighborhood of the same behavior slash same outcomes as Charlotte. And so having Trump win just gets all of those those schools immediately off of death row. So the the Trump bump is sort of uh, two pronged and sort of ironic that totally on the one hand he motivates a bunch of new people to go to law school, right? And on the other hand, he uh, by loosening restrictions on lending, he makes it more possible for people to go to law school, whether or not it's a good idea for them to do it. Absolutely, and it's just sort of a funny side note to however you feel about the guy. He's the savior of law schools. <laughs> he hates to help his enemies, and yet he can't help it. It's like the same thing yeah. with the press. You know, it's like the subscriptions to the New York Times and the viewership of CNN are all up, 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 huge underneath him. So he just can't help but have this effect, I guess. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we come back. We'll finish the story um, and start talking about whether or not we might be able to do something about this or law schools might be able to adapt. So we'll be right back. Sounds great. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist company exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers unlimited calls. Betty's boutique service boasts customized call handling and virtual assistant services provided by highly trained, relentlessly friendly team members ready to help grow your firm even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebetty's.com lawyers to get a free one-week trial and use the promo code podcast to receive $150 off your first month of service. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, a search engine optimization agency working exclusively for personal injury law firms. Simply put, Rankings.io helps personal injury law firms dominate first-page rankings. You'll never have to chase them for an update or hunt them down for an answer. Your clients expect you to be accessible, and Rankings will meet that standard for communication and transparency. You'll have a full team of SEO specialists fighting to put you at the top of Google search results. Personal injury lawyer SEO is all they do, so all their processes, playbooks, and people are completely focused on generating qualified cases for your firm. Best of all, you'll be one of an elite few. Delivering exceptional service and results requires focus, so Rankings.io carefully vets clients before accepting them. It's an ideal fit for growth-oriented personal injury law firms. To see if you're a fit, visit Rankings.io slash Lawyerist to get started. Lawyerist podcast listeners can get 20% off an SEO discovery audit using coupon code Lawyerist. Boost your productivity and save time typing with TextExpander. You can make your own snippets or share and manage snippets for your firm with TextExpander for Teams. You'll reduce errors and increase productivity. TextExpander can save you so much time, it's like getting an extra employee. TextExpander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit TextExpander.com podcast to learn more and get your discount. 
Okay, we're back. So, uh, Ben, we were in the neighborhood of 2016, 2017, talking about the Trump bump uh, and how that had a positive impact on law schools, um, at least in one way. Um, so bring us up to the present. Yeah, well, hold on. Before we do that, let me talk a little bit oh, more okay. about the seeds of the difficulties, because basically that yeah. helps inform what I think the solutions are. So the okay. media narrative was that hiring was bad in 2011 and 2010. And that's true because the media basically at that time and currently really only covers hiring at big law firms. Um, that's what they think the hiring right. rate is for most law schools. And that's just radically inaccurate. Um, and in fact, if you look at the data, roughly a third of American law grads all the way back into the 1990s graduate and can't find full-time, long-time work as a lawyer. Now, some of these folks come and just decide law is not for them, but there's a bunch of available survey data that suggests that that's not the case for most of them. They would prefer to work as a lawyer and they just can't. So the job market has actually been bad for decades. Which like literally everyone knows is except... Oh, no, except the media, but that also means except for the people who apply. Right. You know what I mean? The applicants haven't been filled in on that. Um, so that, that was one of the things that one of these underlying problems... And then there's what I call the eternal, the original sin. The basic problem is that law schools have always, basically since we adopted the Harvard model, done a pretty bad job of teaching people how to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. The irony of this critique is that law schools are actually better now, literally, than they've ever been. Like the only better system than the one that we have for that would be apprenticeship. And so it's been a minute since uh, law schools have done so much to try and do make people practice right now. I'm not saying we're done. I'm certainly not saying that at all. But I am saying that at least there's some effort, there's some movement on that. The creation of clinical programs, the creation of experiential programs alone, externships tells you that schools are at least trying mm -hmm. on that front. And then the, the third problem, and this is the actual the new problem, the future shock problem, is the effect of technology on the law and your listeners will know all about this. So I'm the chair of the admissions committee at the University of Tennessee. So I spent a lot of time speaking to undergrads about whether they should go to law school or not and what it's going to look like for them. Mm -hmm. And there's this hilarious irony that I almost never fails that I don't get an AI question from the students. <laughs> and I rarely, if ever, get a job market question from the students. And I'm like, wake up, people. <laughs> like, I promise you. The robots are not your major concern. Well, I mean, they may be eventually, but you have a much more pressing concern. Right. Three years from now, I promise you, you're not going to be in my office yeah. asking me about AI. <laughs> uh, I think that part of the, the concern is overblown, especially in in terms of the media, like if you sure. get the ABA journal or anything else, you know that the when will AI murderers, you know, take care of all the lawyers? This is this is like a something something that people love to talk about. I mean, don't get me wrong; like talking about robot lawyers is one of our favorite pastimes here. But oh, dude, come on, listen. Humans love an extinction level event. Everyone wants yeah. to talk about that sort of thing. And um, there's like I, I know your podcast is an exception, but in most of this discussion, there's insufficient coverage of the. Legal Zoom rocket lawyer, just sort of more baseline, eating away at legal tasks. So we're kind of in this place where um, law schools are maybe maybe it's a bubble. Yeah, so I'm not quite there like yet. They're they're, sur they're surviving on an inflated market. Yeah, or a weird market. You can't say either that it's a bubble for everyone or that it's an awesome deal for everyone. It's much more. It's like a richer, more context specific question. Um, I, I I totally agree with. Uh, Jillian Hadfield, that uh, hmm. 
We live in a lawsuit world with increasing legal complexity, and that requires smart people to help navigate other people through that world. Like that's a fact, and technology is having a really, really, really strong effect on that increasing legal complexity. Now, whether that's good for the country, I don't think so. <laughs> but whether that's good for uh, the potential law grads of the future, I think the answer to that is definitely yes. Um, that being said, hmm. it's a mixed message to that because the current way of doing it, and this is all the way from the day that they walk into law school, the way we're teaching it and the way they're actually physically going out and practicing it, that's going to change a lot. And so the, stu- the smart students of today, the hustlers of today are going to be the ones who make it in the future. And that requires change at the law school level and at the, you know, as you know, from the from the practitioner's level as well. So what will that take? Yeah. So um, here's what I'll say about the technology part of it. This is one of the three solutions that I have for fixing law schools. And at the very outset, I will say I tried to limit myself to solutions that were at least sort of possible. Um, there's a whole rich literature of law professors uh, suggesting pie-in-the-sky ideas that will never work. <laughs> and so I really didn't want right. my book to fit snugly into that category, so I tried to keep it relatively narrow. Yeah, on the on the technology part of it, here's a couple of things that I say. The first thing I note is that it's not necessary, and it's not even not necessary, it's a bad idea to try and turn law schools into coding schools. Right. There's no version of the future where... Uh, computer programming company or a software company or a hardware company is going to want to hire a lawyer to do a coder's job. Like those are engineering jobs and we're never going to compete in that market. So that, that like that's the first thing to note about it. That being said, that doesn't mean that there's no role for teaching technology. Um, and in particular, I highlight it's a class that I started teaching here two years ago um, and that Georgetown started teaching 10 years ago and that maybe 20 or 30 law schools have a class that's sort of like this. Here, I call it the A2J lab, and basically 12 students sign up, they work in teams, and they create websites, and the websites create legal documents for indigent people in Tennessee. Um, So we've done it for two years, and the technology argument to this is it's not really a coding class. We use uh, Community Lawyer, which, by the way, I strongly recommend. Yeah, it's a really cool tool. Oh, yeah, totally. Really easy to learn. I mean, I'm like computer literate, but I'm not a coder in any way, shape, or form. And I was able to pick it up pretty quickly, and the students were able to pick it up within the first couple of weeks of the semester and then just be off and running. Um, and so it's not a coding skill class exactly, but the skill that we're teaching the students there is to take a legal task, break it apart into its constituent parts, learn the law and practice backwards and forwards for each one of those parts. Then we call it storyboarding, and that's where you figure out what questions you could ask to fill in each step of this task. And then you have to go back through it again to make sure it's at basically at a third grade reading level. Because uh, if you're pitching something to indigent clients, there's no point in giving them a college level you know, explanation of the law and what they're doing. Right. Uh, you got to ask them simple questions, accurate questions, put it in order, and then create the document. One of the things I've been nervous about is, um, I mean, fully support that, like uh, exposing law students to technology and even teaching them how to code doesn't necessarily mean creating lawyer coders. It just means creating more technology literate students and graduates. Um, One of the things that makes me nervous, though, is like my experience of law school, both during and since, has not given me a lot of confidence that 
law schools can teach technology in a way that is going to be useful to graduates. And that's, that's where I'm, I'm not sure I have a whole lot of optimism there, really. How dare you, good sir? <laughs> I believe you owe me an apology. Uh, that is super funny. Um, I will note that, you know, we're law professors, so we grade in a curve. So then you'd have to ask yourself, which exact legal task mm-hmm. is it that we would do a good job of teaching? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that we just think in all of this, um, and I say that partially tongue in cheek, but that may in fact be true. But um, here's what I'll say about that. The technology piece to it, the first thing you like from my point of view, first you have to, as Kanye West would say, you have to crawl before you ball. Like the point of the technology thing is to get the students open-minded to it. And it's not so that they will leave the school and be experts in community lawyer and physically make their own websites, although that would be great. And I certainly have had students do that. Right. It's that they begin to think about the legal problems in a completely different way. That uh, So law school as it exists and as it has existed since 1880 is really, really good at teaching the gray areas of the hardest law. And if you think about the case method and the Socratic method and what your first year looks like and then what evidence looks like in all those other classes, that's what the school is supposed to do. It's supposed to draw your attention to the most complicated, hard areas and then teach you to identify them and argue both sides. As a market matter, that actually makes sense because that's the most work, right? That's the work that people are willing to pay you for. And that's the work that's going to be the last citadel against any AI or technology. Sure. So that's certainly defensible in my opinion. That being said, that is not the entire universe of American law or law in any country. Like There are whole swaths of law that are relatively simple and can be broken apart into constituent parts. If you're willing to think about it in a different way. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah, no. So for sure. So again, and I'm physically teaching this class, so I do not consider it yeah. my job to tell them which areas. I mean, I give them the projects. But outside of that, when they graduate, how they handle this knowledge is is for them to figure out. But I really, really, really want them to think about law in this different way and approach it in a different way. And then it's not only that, because the basically the projects we're doing have a question and answer format to it. And so I don't just mm-hmm. have them think about it in terms of document generation. I try and have them think about it in terms of how can technology streamline every aspect of your practice. And because we're doing question and answer, it's a natural crease point to be like, Start at the very beginning, the first time somebody wants your services and go all the way through to the end. What are the parts that technology can do better than a human, cheaper than a human? What are the parts that only humans can do? What are the parts that are preferable for humans to do? And we do all of that work with them. And again, if your question to me is, do I expect the students who are in my class to go out and graduate and have the skills to actually create their own divorce practice where all of that stuff is done for them? No, like I, I'm not doing that. And I'm certainly not claiming to be able to do that. And in mm-hmm. fact, maybe it would be better if we tried to do that. <laughs> um, that being said, under the circumstances, I feel really, really, really good that they're graduating with this general concept and this construct for how to create a 21st century practice. One of the things that I've been saying too, is like the, the, the skills that it sounds like you're trying to convey um, of picking apart a problem, deciding what's the best way to solve it, and not necessarily hewing to precedent when you do that, there's not a whole lot different between that and how we teach lawyers to solve legal problems. It's just that traditionally we teach lawyers that there's only one kind of problem you can solve in one kind of way. But taking all those thinking like a lawyer skills and applying them to thinking like a designer, it's, re- it's really the same thing. You're just moving those skills over and broadening the way you apply to them, isn't it? 
So that's a super generous read on it. I actually weirdly, <laughs> I, I disagree with that. Okay. And here's what I mean by that. The students that struggle the most in the first year, and I'd be curious to know if this was serious experience as well. Like, so for example, every year I get a, a really smart, hardworking former engineer or former military person who just cannot mm-hmm. handle at all the part where they come to me with their midterm and they're like, I, I got all the answers right. And I'm like, no, you, you kind of didn't because you, you gave me conclusions on each thing, but you have to argue each side on it. And they're like, why would I do that? There's a right answer and a wrong answer. And I'm like, dude, mm. <laughs> I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. And then I drag their, their minds through this process where I'm like, for each step here, you got to argue both sides and look at the crease points. And um, if it's not an implicit, uh, I go ahead and say it explicitly. I mean, sometimes part of the job of being a lawyer is to find these complicated areas and then muddy the waters and try to argue your way around it. That's what the client wants from you. And that's what they're paying for. Yeah, no, that's a super good point. It's not problem solving, it's problem analysis. And technology, at least for now, is bad at that. I mean, that's one of the yeah. things that they struggle with, it, that, that computers are currently struggle with and will struggle with, because it's that's very context dependent and really hard to teach a machine to do. So that that's great. I mean, and at the end of the first year, all of the students who are going to make it get that, right? They understand that part of it. But that's not the end of the story, because then they have to be able to go backwards again and be like, oh, but wait. So I learned about all of these really complicated areas. Where are the simple areas? Are there areas where I can just go through a series of checkboxes and at the end it's done and it's done properly? Um, and that is something that we don't teach and that we need to teach. Does that make sense? Did I explain that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you've talked a fair amount about technology and how that can be a piece of what law schools need to do now. Are there other components that you think law schools could work on and improve on? Yes. Uh, so the first thing, and this is sad to report, the least realistic suggestion that I have, but it's the single most important thing. It's the only thing, if you get nothing else out of the book or out of this podcast, it's that it's not okay for law schools to continuously get more expensive than inflation. It's not okay to have students graduate to the level of debt that they have. <laughs> it's unconscionable. It's not okay. It's the worst of the law school behavior. Things that can't go on forever do not go on forever. Law schools must address this, get out in front of it, or they're going to face much, much, much worse times going forward. One of the possibilities that nobody seems like they want to contemplate that I think might might be true is that it might just be that lawyers are less valuable going forward and, and don't justify the kinds of salaries that you have to pay right now because of how much it costs to become a lawyer. Oh, yeah. No. Right. It just it feels like depending on what the jobs, there are going to be a new spectrum of jobs that lawyers do. It's going to look different. And it, and it just can't continue to be that lawyers are automatically going to be paid six figures to do a job or have an expectation that they should be able to earn hundreds of dollars an hour for the work if it doesn't merit that. And it might not. Yeah. Well, and also keep in mind, there's the expectation versus the market reality. I mean, the the market reality, Mm -hmm. that's a thing that sits on the back of law schools all over the country um, that they have been unwilling to address. But that's not a new thing. I mean, the bulk of the graduates are not going to work in that market and are not going to make those livings. Um, The thing that is puzzling about law schools, and when you spend the time on it, it's actually sort of disheartening. So here's two different things about expense for law school that are really hard to uh, digest. The first one I already said, which is that it's freaking crazy 
that tuition would continue to rise year after year after year, even during a massive downturn. Right. I mean, the value is going down, but the tuition is not. You have a collapse in applications and you're like, yeah, and you know what? It's 8% more expensive than last year. Mm-hmm. And then that leads me to the second, and I've got a great, or I, I love this chart in the book. Um, and it's got a list of the top 20 law schools for graduate debt. And the list is a crazy list in the following way. Um, of these 20 law schools, 17 of them fit into one of two categories. Category one is top 15 schools. And so basically, you know, 10 of the top 15 schools are here among the highest debt schools. And that makes sense. They're among the highest tuition schools. They're among the schools that give the lowest amount of discounts on the tuition. Mm-hmm. So, and like, I have a whole argument about that. That's not likable. And I think those schools have really uh, led in the wrong direction. Basically, insofar as they're leading, they're not doing a good job with that. But regardless of that, at least that makes sense, right? These are what are perceived to be the market leaders. This is what you would think you would want to spend the most for. Mm -hmm. And again, the debt numbers are the actual hard figures for how much is being paid for it. Another, you know, seven, eight schools on this list are some of the worst law schools in America. Uh, law schools where students are having a hard time graduating, hard time passing the bar, and a hard time getting jobs. They're the most among the most expensive. Totally. And you're looking at this list and you're like, how is this, like, if there was a downturn and fewer cars were being sold, the price of a Rolls Royce would not be the same as the price of a Toyota Yaris. Like, the, these, this market should mm-hmm. not sit together looking the same. So these two puzzles, you put them together and they're like, well, how is this possible? Well, uh, I, right. I I think, and this is basically true all over higher ed, the changes in how the government handled student loans. So yeah, when, when I went to law school and maybe when you went to law school, the federal loans were capped. And so that was a natural break on tuition because you could only borrow so much from the federal government and then you had to borrow the rest from a private bank. And as you can imagine, private banks are much less interested in loaning money to students than the federal government is. Mm-hmm. So they actually changed this for what I consider to be a salutary purpose, that basically this cap was hard enough where over time there were middle class and working class people who couldn't afford to go to law school and then couldn't get a loan from a private bank. And so Congress, in their wisdom, said, well, you know what we'll do is we'll just take over student lending altogether. It's not even that profitable for the banks, and we'll just guarantee the entire cost of going to law school um, and business school and other graduate schools. Well, unsurprisingly, so now the federal government's going to write a check to the school for the entire amount of the living expenses and the tuition, whatever they said, it has to be okay with the Department of Education. That's part of the reason why it rises more than inflation every year, because every year it's the federal government that's paying it, not the students. And so it's kind of weirdly invisible to the student. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how you end up with this list where some of the worst law schools, they're letting in anybody that they can and then strapping them with as much debt as they can because they're just unconcerned about what, in my opinion, they're unconcerned about what happens to these folks. And they're also like, this is what I mean by predatory behavior. They're basically trying to confuse these people into coming in. Um, in the hope that they'll have a middle class or upper middle class lifestyle afterwards. And if that were to be the case, like a lot of these people are first generation going to college um, and come from working class backgrounds. And so they're like, oh, it's it's worth the risk to try and do this. But as it turns out, the risk is really not uh, very good. And of course, then you just end up with these huge, massive amounts of debt for the students. Um, So yeah, so it's a tough look on that regard. And so that's my sincere hope is that law schools can lower the debt levels and lower the tuition levels. Um, because And also if they don't, the defaults are going to go up and Congress is not going to be interested in covering $200,000 worth of debt for people to go to law school for very long. 
Um, that's just not a good investment for anybody. That seems likely. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and then the last, the last solution yeah, well, it's the last is, thing. um, and it's actually happening. So this is great. The, the ABA is the frontline regulator for law schools. They basically been delegated that authority by state Supreme courts. Mm-hmm. And so the ABA is sort of shifting their way of regulating law schools. The original version going all the way back 80 years ago is input regulation. So that's basically looking at how much, fa- how many faculty do you have and how many students do you have and how many books do you have in the library and basically looks at the inputs into a quality legal education where they're shifting that to output regulation. So instead of focusing on what the school looks like when you walk into it, they're asking, do the students graduate? Do the students get jobs? Do the students pass the bar? Um, and I can tell you, having taught in the law school since 2001, that's really what the students care about. I promise you. Is that actually working? Like, are we, is, is that starting to bear fruit? It depends what you mean by working. They're trying. They've announced some of the new rules. It takes time to have them come in. Some of them have gotten pushed back. There's been some weirdness about like how, how to exactly measure bar passes and other stuff. But here's what I'll say. When I started writing the book, uh, I, one of the first things I said, and I said it repeatedly during the book was, in the entire history of the ABA, they have never stripped accreditation from an accredited law school and closed it. Never. Not once. They've denied yeah. accreditation to schools. They put schools on probation, but they've never closed the law school. And if you've got 200 law schools over this period of time, you know that they're not hustling too hard if they've never closed one. Right. But they did. They physically did. They closed the Arizona Summit. They put them on, on uh, like, I can't remember the words that they used, but they put them, they basically put them on the death watch and Arizona Summit did a teach out plan. And that school is going to cease to exist as the American Bar Association. And again, similar to Charlotte, like awful, despicable bar passage numbers, horrible expense and loan numbers and terrible job placement numbers. So that's a school that, in my opinion, was totally appropriate for the ABA to go ahead and close. And are you optimistic that that established a real threat? Oh, so I mean, listen, one is way more than zero. So that makes me <laughs> That's happy. That's true. <laughs> um, and, but I mean, yeah, no, they, they, again, super similar to Charlotte. It's not the only law school that looks like that. Um, and there's also rumblings that other schools may close. It's not 100% clear how it's all going to shake out. Hmm. ABA wise, I was very, very heartened to see them actually close the school. I mean, like uh, uh, Valpo. Looks like it's like in the teach out process and looks like it's going to close. Um, Whitman is actually closed. Um, hmm. Those were closed by the trustees, basically, not by the ABA. So, but yeah, the output regulations, I would say, are you have to keep an eye on it. And the second I'll say why, uh, but the trend is good and the trend is totally in the right direction. In the book, I say, let a thousand flowers bloom. So when you have output regulation, People ask me all the time, they're like, well, what do you think about online legal education? Or what would you think about a school that fired most of its tenured faculty and used judges and adjuncts? Wouldn't that be terrible? Or wouldn't this be terrible or the other? Listen, I've got a single measure for it. If the school graduates people who get jobs and pass the bar, that school is fine with me. And I like in terms of the inputs, you can just tell me whatever inputs you want. I'm just not worried about it. If the school's able to hit those three goals, that's what the students are paying for. That's our actual job. So I'm super happy um, if that's what the school does. But on top of let a a thousand flowers bloom, I also add on the appendage, but don't be evil. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is (laughs) if we move to output regulation, but it's not tight output regulation, we've seen a lot of predatory behavior. 
And output regulation requires T. You have to actually go out and tell schools, listen, the output is bad, fix it, or we're closing you. Um, and so we've seen, we've seen some evidence of that happening, and that's great. Uh, I don't think the job is done. I think that the ABA has to stay vigilant and keep on top of that because there's always a version of this where the ABA moves to output regulation and then does even less than they did under input regulation. And obviously that would not be salutary. Yeah, that's yeah, that would be a bad thing. <laughs> why, why don't you uh, why don't you let us know when a student comes to you, when a, a college graduate comes to you and says, "Hey, I'm thinking about law school. How do you advise them these days?" Yeah, so this is a great question. I love this one. So uh, the first thing I note is that it's always been a bad time to go to law school if you're a history major who doesn't know what else to do, and your mom says you're good at arguing. <laughs> Fair they enough. They shouldn't have gone yep. to law school in 1950. They shouldn't have gone to law school in 1970. They shouldn't go to law school in 2020. That's just a bad, dumb reason to go to law school. That being said, it was so much cheaper in 1950 or 1970. Um, right. Like The downside risk of that was really, really, really limited. It's really expensive now. And it's like expensive in time and in money. So it's if before you come to law school, you absolutely have to do the work to make sure that it is for you. And so in the book, I lay out a whole bunch of steps. You have to actually identify more than one job you might want to get. And then you have to identify whether you actually could get, like if your two jobs are equine lawyer and sports lawyer for Kobe Bryant, then that's a problem. Like you have to identify jobs you might actually be able to get. Be a little realistic here. And then you need to identify the schools. And then the, the ABA, to their credit, is amazing on data. Like there's so much publicly available data about every single law school. So you can do a ton of research in particular on job placement for every law school. Every law school in America, basically, um, because the ABA requires it and the US News looks at it, has a list of every graduate and what job they have. And so you should be able to call up a law school and say, look, I'm interested in doing blank. I'm interested in being a district attorney in this area of the country. Tell me who gets those jobs. If the answer is nobody, then that's not the law school for you. Mm -hmm. anyway, so there's this whole like research aspect to it. Um, and then at the end of it, if you've decided that you want to go and you've done the research, it's actually weirdly kind of a good time to go to law school. And here's what I mean by that. Hmm. The, like, the gatekeepers, the traditional way of doing law, like when I went to law school and maybe when you went to law school, people really had the feeling that you had to get a certain type of grades to work at a certain type of firm to get the next certain type of job that you wanted. Like it was very path dependent and where you ended up in law school really, really, really mattered a lot for that. It's my impression studying the um, practice side of things that that's all breaking down. Like we're seeing a massive breakdown in the traditional gatekeepers. And so that's a scary time to go to law school. But if you're like an entrepreneurial hustler, it's actually a good time to go to law school. That's what I have been telling people too, is like, you know, if you want to be a lawyer and you're comfortable with the idea that being a lawyer might mean you have to start your own thing, go for it. It's super exciting. There's a ton of opportunity yeah. out there. But if what you want is this traditional idea that you work hard, work your ass off for three years and then you get hired by a big firm or a medium-sized firm or a small firm might not work that way for you. No. And this is one of the things that, um, all law schools do this. Some do it implicitly, some do it explicitly, and that's even worse. Um, but basically people, a generation above us, the people who went to law school, it was in fact true that law school is inexpensive and a route to an upper middle class life. Like that's a statistical fact for those folks. The Census Bureau data suggests that that is the case. Um, and law schools are still dining out on that tab. Like the, the impression of 
the kids who are applying to law school today, if their parents haven't been paying attention, is their parents are like, oh, yeah, go to law school. That's a great idea. You know what I mean? Like just thoughtlessly. Oh, and, and I know t- t- lots of lawyers of a certain age continue to believe that that is the thing that they are advising people about doing. Yeah. And part of that's that they just don't understand it. Um, and actually, you know, so like I'm uh, Gen X. And if the students ask me, it's, it's true. I had to borrow. I, I borrowed more money to go to law school than I could ever possibly imagine paying back. Mm-hmm. But that's still a third of what people are borrowing now. You know what I mean? Right. But, oh God. I so know. Uh, so if you're, an older lawyer is giving a, a potential law student, don't worry about the loans. You'll pay them back. You know, they should actually think about the math of like that. How? Yeah. No, the loans <laughs> are really, really, really big and different now. And not everybody goes to work at a law firm. And even if you go work at a fancy law firm. It's, it takes you a minute to pay back two hundred grand. Like that's just not that's not something mm-hmm. you write off after a couple of years of working. That just sits with you for a long time. I'll tell I'll tell one more, one last story and then I'll let you go. Yeah, please do. Part of the story also is these this, the alumni and the, the older lawyers who just have a totally different understanding of what it looks like to go to law school or whether it's a good value or not. And I gave a version of this speech in Nashville to a, a bunch of corporate counsel. And one of them came up and he was like, oh, so good to see you. I'm a 1978 graduate of the University of Tennessee of Law, College of Law. And it's great to talk to you about this. And, and I was like, let me ask you a question. How much, uh, how much are the costs? And he was like, $150 a quarter. Oh, my God. That's how much it costs to go to the University of Tennessee in the 70s. And I was like, uh, I'm guessing that worked out for you. And he was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would work out for anybody. <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying. So, I mean, like, I'm just saying, you don't want to take that dude's advice on whether it's a good investment to go to law school, totally. for sure. That feels like a nice, tidy uh, thing to tie things up and end on. So, Ben, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for coming back to the podcast and helping us figure out what's going on in the academic wing of things. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. Are you interested in implementing the ideas you've heard on today's podcast into your law firm? Could you use a little help? Hey guys, it's Stephanie, the VP of Community Success here at Lawyers, and I'd love to help you tackle your business or take it to the next level. Head over to go.lawyerist.com backslash start to sign up for a quick call with me, and let's talk about how Lawyerist can help you create your best law firm. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.